Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. I am really uh, pleased with uh, the opportunity for LAM Research and for myself to work with the Graduate School of Management because I think under the, the vision of um, Dean Biggert, uh, you're trying to do some things here in the area of leadership curriculum that goes beyond kind of the traditional uh, thinking in management schools around let's teach people about finance, let's teach them about marketing, let's teach them about management skills, and we'll expose them to the general principles and concept of leadership. But the reality is that leadership is, is, very, is a very complicated environment. Elements of leadership can absolutely be taught. And the best leaders are a combination of their personality, their behaviors, their value system, and what they've been taught in terms of honing it to a, to a finer degree. And the reality of why leadership is important is that as you go forth, and I think almost all of you have, what, four to six years of experience having graduated from your undergraduate uh, programs. And, you know, clearly corporations or a business or whatever it is that you're choosing to do with your life is more and more today having to deal with change and adapting to change. And the one fundamental basic definition of leadership is, is a set of activities focused on trying to create positive change. And you notice I said positive change because there's a lot of examples in the world of very effective leaders who at least to maybe some people's definition aren't exactly trying to make positive change. They're, they're motivating people to do things that um, perhaps are not in the best interests of the human race. Um, but in the process of trying to create positive change, there's some real fundamental things that I think people who want to be in positions of responsibility, who want to be in positions where they are leading other people, need to understand. And one of them is the importance of a values-based leadership orientation. And so that's what I want to spend a few minutes with you this morning. We'll make it an interactive session. I will stop and ask questions, and you'll get your first opportunity to uh, probably get some feel for what your professors will do here in terms of if you haven't prepared for sure you'll be the one that has to answer the question. And so the way I'll work it is I'll leave it up to somebody to choose to voluntarily answer it. But if I don't get an answer voluntarily, guess what? I get to pick one of you to represent the rest of the students in the room. So um, be ready. Okay, so here we go. So we're going to talk about creating a values-based company. And, and given that so many of you have been out in and working for, whether it's small companies or larger corporations, hopefully you'll have a perspective by which you can um, deal with this on. What did we do at LAM Research over the last 11 years? And what do I see as what the real benefits are behind building a strong values-based company? And then some parting words of, of perspective. So when you're creating a values-based company, it's legitimate to say, why values-based? And you know, 10 years ago, there was a lot of cynicism around the whole concept of, uh, you know, all that integrity stuff and all of that stuff about the responsibility of management and, and to employees and to the community and to the, 
to the relationship with what damage you're doing or not. It's all about making money and just just go for it. And all's fair in love and war in, in business. And those guys who practice that philosophy are now in jail. And so, you know, suddenly the whole idea around, you know, maybe things that are based on a foundation of values and the resultant orientation in terms of behavior, maybe those things really are important. And maybe we've lost our way over time in the capitalistic world in pursuit of the almighty uh, extra dollar. And so my opinion is that strong and ethical values are in fact critical to the success of the company. I believe that the vast majority of people want to be a part of something that does it the right way. And many of us are capable that if the environment we're in is a jungle and it's survival of the fittest, we'll learn how to develop jungle survival skills. And just because we can do it doesn't mean that we necessarily like it. But if that's the way of the world and you've got to put food on the table, then, you know, it's figure out how to survive or die. And given a choice to work in an environment, in a culture that's dramatically different from those corporations who have that orientation, people readily choose to want to be a part of that and then to behave in ways that are consistent with that. So where do values come from? And, you know, whole courses, whole semesters are spent on where values emanate from. And this is very, very simplistic. But clearly, the social and political considerations that exist in your society make up a big element of what your value system is. The weight of history, going back thousands of years, And you can kind of see those weight of history cultural things that when the Soviet Union was, in essence, occupying all kinds of countries in the post-World War II, and suddenly the Soviet Union falls, goes back to being Russia, and suddenly all of these countries that many people didn't even know existed uh, suddenly reemerge. And what reemerges with them? the cultural weight of all the past sins and animosity that they've harbored against each other going back literally thousands of years to when things were tribal in nature and everything was territorial in nature. And the human species was far more like the dominant mammals on the planet in terms of prey or predator. And the only question was, were you on a tribe that was more successful at being a predator or were you in a tribe that was a victim and prey? And in many respects, when we look at today's world and we think we're far more advanced and civilized and so much more intelligent and we've put all that warlike behavior behind us, obviously, you don't have to look very far to see that that's absolutely not true. It may be true to a greater extent today, but it still exists to a very significant degree. And how fast we as a species will progress beyond that orientation, who knows? But they definitely have an impact on values. And then your beliefs and norms. And, and the issue becomes, you know, what's the basis for your beliefs and norms? And so one of the things that happens when you go to school, right, is you're going to get taught to think on your own. And ultimately, when you go out into the business world and you're faced with the weight of, here's how we do things. And you look at it and go, hmm, that's really interesting. 
Um, but help me understand why you like to do things that don't work. And I'd kind of like to contribute to helping you and us figure out how to do it better. And then have people give you all the reasons why we do what we do, and none of which makes sense except it's what we've been doing, and we're comfortable with it. So leadership doesn't start when you become a CEO. Leadership starts from the day you take on your first responsibility and recognize the opportunity and the need to change something in a positive way. And leadership skills will be needed to convince people that the change is needed, the change is appropriate. You can redefine an objective. You're going to have to align people with you to go after it. And then you're going to have to motivate people. They may hopefully bring their own level of motivation to it. But the leadership process starts at the bottom. It affects and spreads and has a role for everybody to play. And it's not just something that's practiced by the senior executives. So from your value set comes a set of behaviors. Okay? So we're not talking about personality. We're not talking about style. We're talking about behaviors. So how many of you have lived in or come from a country other than the United States? Okay. A lot of you. Okay. So to what extent is your value system and your behaviors different than what people who were born and raised in the United States and have grown up in the United States in terms of how they look at what is normal behavior? Is it the same as yours? No, it's very different. And so when you look at their behavior, which is different than what you grew up with, do you view it as different, or do you view it as wrong? Don't lie. How do you view it? Your initial reaction is, what the heck is that all about? That is absolutely wrong. Now, when you come to another country, you might not view it that way. You might suspend judgment, and you might invest in understanding. Why do the people who were born and raised here behave that way? Why do they value these things? So I had an opportunity to, to learn that. I don't say the hard way, but it was a hard way. I went and lived in Japan for two years. Okay? Anybody here from Japan? Okay. So, Japanese culture, U.S. West Coast culture, because U.S. culture is different. New England's different than the South, it's different than the Midwest, different than the West Coast. People don't think there's any culture in America but other than <laughs> McDonald's and all the rest of that guys, but, but there are. So, a ton of things in Japan are exactly 180 out. So, we use 911 for emergencies, what do they use? 119. Is that by accident or on purpose? We drive on the right-hand side of the road, they drive on the left-hand side of the road. English is a very direct language. Japanese is a very indirect language. Americans are results-oriented. Japanese are effort-oriented. Not that they don't ultimately need to get results, but they value effort. We go, screw the effort, win or lose. Okay? 
They're much more team and consensus oriented. We're much more willing to be individualistic, although I think teamwork in America is greatly under-recognized. And in fact, as you will learn, you will have to work in teams here. You will have to develop social skills, relationship skills. And I don't care how smart you are as an individual, nobody cares. How well do you work with others? When you get into a company, I don't care if you're Phi Beta Kappa, 4.0, 4.5, whatever you are, I don't care. If you can't take your education and apply it, and apply it in a manner that causes others to want to work with you, you're worthless. So, when you get in the classroom, one of the things you want to think about and really demand of your professors is, hey, let's make sure we get opportunities to expose and to learn how to work with other people, because when you get out in the business world, that will be an incredibly important skill. Incredibly important. So the great story in Japan about being difficult is it, you can know that most of what you're going to experience is the opposite. But that doesn't mean that you can really figure out what to do. So I'll give you a quick little story, and you can tell me the answer. So you're driving down the street in a car. Dog runs out in front of you. You're in Japan. You hit the dog. Dog doesn't make it. So, the owner of the dog comes out of their house, and what conversation ensues? What do you say to the owner? What does the owner say to you? Yeah. That's right. See, in America, what would happen? You would apologize to the owner for running over the dog. In Japan, the owner will apologize to you for the dog creating enormous mental anguish and pain because they, they assume and figure that's what you're going through, and they're really sorry and apologetic for it. Okay? And so if you went and then apologized to them, you'd confuse the heck out of them. Okay? And so that's a function of their value system. Okay? And so their behaviors are consistent with the value system that has been present in a very homogeneous society, by the way, that's evolved over thousands of years. So the best advice I can give you about values is to recognize that the behaviors are the manifestation of a value system and that before you pass judgment as to whether those behaviors are right or wrong, try to understand the orientation of where they come from and why they are what they are. Not just what they are, but why do the Japanese behave the way that they do? Why do people in the West Coast of the United States tend to behave the way that they do? And investing and in understanding the origin of people's value system is very worthwhile because as this group is truly international and many people come from many different cultures. When I ask the question in a group of 70 land managers, and every year I, I basically have a, an all-day management forum with groups of 70 managers all around the world. In the United States, the makeup of that team will be at least 50 to 60 percent people who were not born in the United States and English is not their primary language. So, in Fremont, California, they work in a culturally integrated 
activity. So where is it non? Well, 95 or 98 percent of our Japanese organization is Japanese. Same thing with our Korean group. Same thing with our Taiwanese group. Singapore is kind of a melting pot international location for Asia. But the most integrated workforce is in our California-based workforce. And uh, so learning to deal with different cultures, different values, different behaviors, very important. And as a function of that, the collective expression of behaviors will determine what the culture is, what the environment is of of your workforce. So who's responsible for putting together, well, what is our company value system going to be? And that's the CEO and the top management team. Got to go off together and say, hey, what do we want to stand for? What do we want to believe in? And so one of the fundamental principles is that the management team has to believe in They, in fact, themselves have to practice those values and demonstrate those behaviors. And they have to reward people whose behaviors are consistent with the value system. I once worked in a company and worked for a president of a company whose comment to me was, and he clearly did not practice the values that were published and stated in the company. And he said, you Americans, he was not an American, you don't get it. When you're in power, you get to make the rules. And you're not somebody who has to follow the rules. That's for everybody else. Well, see, that violates one of the fundamental principles of leadership. No, you don't get to do that. You get to make the rules. But if you don't follow them, if you don't practice them, if you don't walk the talk, then people will lose respect for you. Oh, you might be able to make them conform to the rules but you can't make them respect you. And they might respect your positional power, but they won't respect you as a person if you take that approach, that he who makes the rules can break the rules. And Congress wonders why many of us don't respect what they do. When you look at all the rules that they pass, if you look at all the exemptions that Congress has passed for themselves in terms of what we as corporations and you as people have to do, but they don't, they're a classic example of we make the rules and we can exempt ourselves. It doesn't work that way, folks. So, values-based leaders define those behaviors and look at the linkage okay, between how those values-based actions affect all the constituencies. So customers, employees, suppliers, investors, and the community upon which you, which you work in. And so, those values are going to define standards of behavior. And behavior that we use with each other behavior that we use with customers, but more importantly, it actually will help us know what the right decision is that we have to make in terms of doing the right thing, being honest, being accountable, and behaving in a way that enables the customer to trust us in terms of what we're doing, as opposed to not being up front with the customer, not being genuine, not being honest with the customer. So from that standards of behavior, those executives have to personally commit. They have to get integrated into the management philosophy. They have to be oriented to a long-term focus in the best interest of people over time. Because one of the, one of the challenges that company faces, investors have a tendency to be one of being very short-term focused. And that's not true of all, but some investors. 
Some employees might be short-term focused because they don't intend to be there five years later. But the reality is a management team has to think in terms of what is in the long-term best collective interest of growing and generating a set of profits and providing for the long-term success of the enterprise. And if you do this right in terms of selecting a good set of values, and there's no one right set of values, there's just which ones do you want, why do you want them, they're not the only values, they're the ones that you want to make sure are the consistent values, and organizations can add to them, they cannot subtract to them, and if you do that right, then over time, you will see success manifested in a wide variety of ways in terms of what ultimately the biggest benefit of a values-based set of behaviors is it tends to build trust. If your customers trust you, if the employees trust the management team, if the employees trust each other and the management team trusts each other, you would be amazed what can be accomplished. All it takes is one of those constituencies to lack trust, and you're in big trouble. The employees don't trust each other. They don't work effectively together. They don't trust management. You're in big trouble. And if the customers don't trust you, forget it. You're going to go out of business. And so one of the other fundamental things that you want to think about relative to leadership is, what are the things that I do that can grow people's trust in me, in my group, in my organization, in my company? What are the things that I do that may be causing people to question whether they should trust? And are there things that I'm doing that actually are degrading trust? With trust, it's almost unlimited what you can accomplish. And without it, there's almost nothing you can accomplish. So core values at LAM Research. So these eight core values is what we as a management team 11 years ago went off and worked through for three or four days. And when we, when we finally got them, then the issue was, okay, guys, there was about 10 of us. We start with, this is what we believe in and we practice and we hold ourselves accountable to. People start squirming in their chairs a little bit. What do you mean by, we have to practice this and we're going to be held accountable? <laughs> Just what I said. We're going to practice it and we're going to be accountable. What does accountable mean? If you fail to practice these core values, then depending upon the seriousness of what you did that was inconsistent with it or the frequency at which you do it, you won't be a senior executive in this company. So that caused a few people to reconsider whether they really wanted some of these values. And if you look at those value sets up there, which, which value do you think they might have had the greatest concern in terms of being able to practice it in the eyes of their people. If you have somebody that's like a real star, maybe they don't want to get bogged down with the team. Maybe they think they run their unit the way they run it. They don't want to 
They prefer, they think they can get the best achievement for their unit without having to, you know, do all this namby-pamby teamwork type of stuff on a, on a high senior mentor. You can have people that, that have that concern, that, but that, that wasn't an issue with this group of guys. But it could very well be at, at other places. Yes? Uh, I would guess open communications. Like, that would be hard to, uh, particularly in, a, in certain businesses, for people to feel like they just had to open it up and share with their team. Sure. One of the reasons I'm smarter can make better decisions to you because I have more information than you. So if I make sure you never have as much information as I do, guess what? I'm always a better decision maker. People never do that, do they? <laughs> they, w- they wouldn't possibly think about controlling the flow of information so therefore they can always ensure that they're better able to be better. So that, that's an issue. What's another one? Ownership and accountability. You like to own success but not... No, they like to own the title and the money, but not the responsibility and the consequences for failing to perform. But these guys weren't worried about that. But definitely, if you get into the ranks, this whole issue of ownership and accountability, it's like, hey, I want, I want the title, I want the, I want the decision-making authority, and if I screw it up, I don't want you to do anything about it. Okay? Well, it, I'm sorry, it don't work that way. If you want to be in management and you want the title, and you want the money, and you want the authority to make decisions, it's not that you can't make mistakes, but you've got to make a lot more good decisions than you made bad decisions, or why should management trust you with that responsibility? And more importantly, what do you think your people think of you? It's like, gee, why do I have to work for this incompetent person? I mean, it creates all kinds of issues for them. So, you know, you're in the graduate school of management, and a lot of you are looking that you want to be a member of management. Well, you better understand, absolutely and clearly, it isn't about prestige and, hey, I can come back to my GSM reunion 10 years from now and look at what title I have. Okay? And there's people who absolutely get focused on that stuff. You go back to, I mean, spent time at Harvard. I mean, it's like <laughs> unbelievable stuff over there. These guys compete on stupid stuff. Um, because at the end of the day, I mean, you got to want to be in a position of responsibility because you need to be motivated by a desire to want to contribute in ways that you're capable of and and work with people in ways that get them to perform better than on their own they could do and better than they believe they're individually or collectively capable of. And you've got to really enjoy and love the process of achieving things through other people. And as you move up, it's less and less about you. It's more and more about them and what you can do to help them be successful. So in the end, though, you have to be accountable for what you have ownership for. So that ain't it either, although... There are people that will be concerned. Yes? I think it might be honesty and integrity because that spills over into your personal life and how you behave as well as your work life. And sort of, to me, that's the root of respect is, uh, are those two things. Clearly, without honesty and integrity, you will never be trusted. But they were okay with that, too, because they understood that. I mean, some of the shifty people around there have a different definition of, well, how honest do I have to be? Kind of like, honesty is actually one of those black and white things. Oh, in American culture it is. Is it in Asian cultures? 
When does saving face, which is really big in a lot of the Asian cultures, justify them not being as truthful about what's going on? What's that? It is quite gray. It's quite gray. And see, in society, things can be gray. In the business, if you allow it to be gray, what you've just allowed in is confusion. And one of the things that you have to do in a global company is to find what the company's value system is. And it may be different than what the cultural norms are. And you have to train and educate people. Outside these walls, you can do X, Y, Z. Inside these walls, when we talk about honesty, which means what's going on is what's going on. And if you're asked to give a status of what's going on, you give what the status is. And if that ends up embarrassing somebody who wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing very well, well, so be it. Because they signed up for that responsibility, and that's what comes with it. Now, you don't have to burn people. You don't have to intentionally embarrass people. But in a company, if you don't know what the facts are about what's not working, what's your chances of being able to fix it? Zero. If you know that what you're doing doesn't work, and it's out there on the table, then you can fix it, and people can bring help, et cetera, et cetera. But it is, it is a challenge for some people, but that's still not the one that they were most concerned about. Well, by the time we're done here, we'll have all eight of them on the... <laughs> which also speaks to the fact that how people look at a set of values is very much individually oriented in terms of what they think the most important value is, et cetera. And ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to, you have to reconcile through that with people. Yes? Uh, mutual trust and respect. Hey, why? Because if it's there, that's great. But if it's not, it's incredibly hard to What's the definition of mutual trust and respect? When do I violate? If they like, don't respect somebody else that's on the management team or don't think that they're doing as good a job as they would do, then it doesn't really have a future. Is the definition of respect... A simple one? Is it situational? Is it in the eyes of the recipient of whatever occurred in terms of whether they feel like what you did was disrespectful? Absolutely. It's highly subjective. Now, you can frame it. You do these kinds of things, that absolutely is a violation of behavior that's trustworthy and respectful. And then you're in the gray zone. You do these kind of things. It depends on the context. depends on the recipient. depends on a whole bunch of things. And then, you know, if you're over here, you may be very respectful and very trustworthy. You also may be totally ineffective. It's like somebody gets up and explains to you why they're one month behind schedule on a three-month project. And it would be very respectful to say, well, you know, thank you, Bob. I really appreciate that effort. I know you're really trying. And I just want you to know we're behind you. Just, just keep going and, you know, keep trying. And, you know, we really appreciate the hard work. Or, uh, Bob, being one month behind on a three-month project and not knowing as you were going along what the problems were, what the issues were, not putting in place a good accountability system to track where you were is unacceptable. You got two weeks to fix it. You got two weeks to get a corrective action plan in place. I'll see you in my office at three o'clock on Friday, two weeks from now. Now, Bob may be tough and go, I deserve that. I'm doing a lousy job. I better get my act together. No problem. Somebody else 
who may have been in the, the, the team meeting may have said, oh, wow, he really nailed Bob to the wall and shouldn't have done it in a public setting. If he did it in private, it'd be okay, but he did it in public, made Bob look bad in public, so that was disrespectful. So, is it or isn't it? It's a really gray area. And it also depends on the culture of your company. And it depends on how much time you have. If I had to do private corrective action discussions with all the executives that I was running business reviews with, I'd, I'd never have time to sleep. So you got to do stuff in a fast-paced, fast-moving company that occurs in public forums, and it isn't always comfortable. Now, crossing the line would be, Bob, let me tell you something. You are the stupidest blah, blah, blah I've ever seen in my life. I can't believe that you're this dumb. And you know what? Actually, you're so stupid, I'm taking away your authority to run this project. But thank you very much for trying. Okay? And that would be clearly crossing the line in terms of you now attacked the individual, right? So they feared this definition being so individually subjective that people would call them and say, you violated mutual trust and respect. And so we had to get over, and part of the idea was saying, you know what, let's eliminate it then. Too much subjectivity. And then we said, well, wait a minute. You're right, it's hard to define, but is it a value that we should be aspiring to? Is it a value that we have to work through the gray zone and that it's fundamentally not something that is always going to be agreed upon, but is it a right value to have? And we ultimately agreed on that. Then ultimately, when you go into a company and you introduce a set of values that in, in reality the behaviors are not consistent with. Now... The first thing people look at is, well, if I hunker down and wait long enough, this will go away. This is just another management initiative, and, you know, they're not really serious. And what's the first thing they look at in terms of whether they start the process of trusting that you're serious? Yeah, whether the leaders demonstrated. And when they don't, what does the president or CEO do about it? So after I fired two of that original group for core values violations, then they agreed we were serious about it. And five years later, after all kinds of investment in time and energy and effort, they now own the value system. It's theirs. And they hold each other accountable. The whole employee base holds the management team accountable. The management team holds everybody accountable. It's a total interweave of holding people accountable. But in the beginning, You've got to recognize, if you're introducing this, you're trying to create what you believe is positive change. So you've got to explain the reason, explain the vision, explain the value, align people, and reward them, and then punish those who choose not to. And those in the most senior positions actually get punished the most. Because, by definition, they're supposed to set the right example. And when you're dealing with three, four, five thousand people, it takes a while to get the entire global organization bought in and believing and actually behaving consistently. Imagine what it was like for Lou Gerstner when he went into IBM 15 or 20 years ago and was brought in to go change the culture of IBM. They only had a couple hundred thousand employees. And one thing that Gerstner says is that if he was going to have spent more time on any one thing, do you think it was on their market strategy, their product strategy, their segmentation strategy, their technology strategy, 
or on the organization design and development and orientation to culture in the company. And he would have spent more time on the latter. Because ultimately, IBM's success was going to be whether they could change some significant flaws in the behavior sets and the values sets in the company and ultimately changing the culture. So I'm going to move quickly through this. What we said is some of the foundation things about how we do things are got to do with honesty, integrity, got to do with trust and respect, got to do with open communications, ownership and accountability and teamwork. Those things are all foundation givens, but we have to have an achievement orientation, which means we're not motivated by fear of failure, and we're not motivated by performing to a level that gets us just enough beyond failure so that we can exist or we can keep our job. We're motivated to achieve to a definition of we set the standard of excellence in the industry, which means we want to be the best. And the minute you go to a group and say, who has not been the best, by the way, we are going to commit ourselves to be the best. And they're looking around the room going, who are you talking about? We've just demonstrated that we're not capable of being the best. And the company we took over had gone from like 34% market share to 22 and a half. It was like a 747 and a nosedive from 40,000 feet. And we climbed on board at 10,000 and said, let's pull this baby out before it crashes. So we also said, we're going to be oriented toward innovation and continuous improvement. And we got to put the customer and the company first, then your organization, then the individual. So from that, we had these vision objectives. We want to be number one. Not in customer satisfaction, but in trust. Because trust is an all more encompassing, even greater encompassing word than satisfaction. Number one in market share in the markets we serve. We want to build a culture and environment where successful people want to be here. They want to stay here if they're here, or we want to attract and recruit people who want to be a part of success. Who, if we can find them, have been successful all their lives. Because if people have been successful all their life, they have with them an achievement orientation. It's part of who they are. It's part of their character. We wanted to be a multi-product company in our financial performance, and we would talk to customers about this. Look, we don't exist solely to provide for your profitability. We have obligations to our shareholders, and we have obligations to you. We've got to make a profit so we can reinvest it, so we can develop the products that you need to stay on the leading edge of an extremely high-technology world. So then we came up with this mission statement. There's a couple of important things in the statement. One starts with dedicated to the success of our customers. So putting the customer first, so it's consistent with the value of think customer, company, individual. Consistent with the idea of being world class is that's what achievement-oriented people are motivated to be, the best. And so... You know, what I'll tell people is, have you thought about what's different about the makeup of the people in a company that's world-class versus the makeup of the people in a company that's not? What's different? What do you think is different? 
Do you want to go to world, work for a world-class company? I, I would say it's the intensity, so the, the, the sheer desire to be world-class or to, to have thematic followers. Typically, there will be an intensity there, but there's a lot of companies with intensity who are not world-class. Understanding the various needs are maybe different if you have people in a different country that might have different needs than your customers in another area of the world. Necessary, but not sufficient. But, it, but I mean, you're exactly right. That has to be there, but it's not sufficient. Uh, people there, uh, even, they come, even if they come from different cultures or different environments, they break those barriers to work for a common goal, to achieve uh, a common uh, a common uh, goal, which is like to exceed in their, uh, exceed in their industry to do well. Um, I mean, I think that as the world continues to flatten and companies have talented people from all kinds of different cultures and places, that will be a critical skill set for that company to be successful. But is Toyota a world-class company? Uh, in Toyota headquarters in Japan, how many non-Japanese do you think are running around in there? Not hardly any. Now, interestingly, Nissan, which struggled mightily, you know who's running Nissan? Frenchman. Like, that's like crazy. So, <laughs> and so, you know, it, it, that's, that's not it either. Let's, let's kind of think more philosophical, Okay. I think if somebody, uh, a world-class company is going to be filled with people that identify as wanting to be world-class or wanting to be the best, because if you're doing something that's hard to do, there's going to be lots of people that are trying, that are good at doing something that's hard to do also, but I mean, a whole company that can actually be the best or be close to the best is going to have to be full of people that are actively aiming for that, as opposed to just trying to be able to do the hard thing. But, okay, and that gets, that's getting closer. Maybe simple to say, but I think it's it, uh, simply people expect to succeed. And if they don't succeed, they expect to succeed next time. Yeah, I mean, here, here's the difference. And think about this in terms of world-class athletes, and we just went through the Olympics, right? And there's clearly a bunch of them that have no chance, and they know it. So they're competing for you know, being a part of the competition in the Olympics. But then there's a bunch of them who are, in fact, have the potential to, to win or to medal. And they're going to go through years of grueling training. And then they're going to put themselves up on the public stage. And are they motivated by a fear of failure or are they driven by a need to achieve? Clearly, they're driven by a need to achieve because if they are afraid of failure, you don't go into competition because you always will lose at some point in time. You're never always going to win. So you can't be afraid of failure if you want to know what it feels like to win. Now, what else do they have? As you said, an expectation of winning. You're right. They have a belief that they can and they will. And world-class companies have a bunch of people who expect and absolutely believe that they can be the best. Now, do they believe that in the company context as an individual or do they believe it in the context of collectively as a whole, we can set standards of excellence and be the best? And it's, it's the we, because anybody here world-class in anything? I mean, the best in the world? I mean, we might have a, could have an Olympic diver in here. Of course, it wouldn't be an American, it would be a Chinese, but... Um, <laughs> 
So, I mean, anybody here the best in the world? Yeah? yeah. Uh, and that is the product, the world product, which is the number one in the world in, in terms of market capitalization and uh, individual consumption. Was that because of you by yourself or a team? Okay, so you were part of a world-class activity, but you're not a world-class individual. You might think you are, I just told you that you're not, but that's okay. <laughs> so who's world-class in something? Anybody the best athlete in the world in anything here? Anybody get the highest SAT score? I mean, 1600's it, right? Or now it's 2400, right? Lots of people do that, so. World class for a moment. I mean, that's the problem if you've ever competed or done any of these things or musician, whatever, you're, it's a moment, right? Someone else comes along and is better, faster, bigger, stronger. That's the nature of the beast, of being world class. So it's a never-ending process of achievement to me. So I don't know, I'll get up with Stanford's world class talking about tennis players. Not so much. We've got a couple other guys that might pass him by, you know, and in the clips what world-class really means. Right. And, and people can tell you that you're not, like they told J.T. O'Sullivan after eight teams kicked him off, and now he's starting quarterback. And world-class isn't, in a business context, about what you are as an individual. What it is is about your belief system, what it is about your expectations, what it is about your effort, what it is about your ability to translate all of that, though, and get results, because, again, you know, trying hard isn't enough Okay? But it's being committed to the concept, to the philosophy and the belief system that we, collectively together, using our combined brain power, our motivations, our energies, our analysis of things, we can actually figure out how to do this better than anybody else in our industry, maybe in, in the world. And it absolutely gets done, obviously, because there are world-class co- Somebody has to be the best. Okay, so when we started at LAM and we said, let's be world class, a bunch of people came up and said, why do we have to do that? <laughs> I mean, literally. And, and, and like, we're happy here like being number three and you know, kind of being a part of this industry. And I said, so what are you afraid of? So what, what are people afraid of when they come right out and say, I, I don't want to be world class? What are they afraid of? Failure. They're afraid of failure. What else are they afraid of? They, yeah, they, that's, you know, they might not be able to be a best, so they're afraid to fail, yeah. They're afraid of change. They're afraid of change, true, yeah. The effort it takes. Yeah, the effort it takes. To be world-class, I'm going to have to work too hard. <laughs> and you know what? I kind of like coasting along here. So I just simply said, well, you might be comfortable going out to the customer as the third-place company and saying, you know what? Let me give you all the reasons why you should buy from the third-best product. Let me give you all the reasons why you should put your company at risk and buy this product that clearly the market has said is, is third place. I said, I want to go out and sell and talk to customers about what we have that's the best, and if it isn't the best today, how we're going to make it the best, and how we're going to commit publicly to our customers, to our employees, to our shareholders. We are going to be satisfied with nothing but figuring out how to be the best. And we may fail, folks. But here's one thing's for sure. If you don't try, you will fail. But if you try, you'd be surprised how you actually can be extremely successful and more successful than you ever thought you could be. And that's what happened at LAM Research, where 
Jim Bagley and I, and the team that we brought in, we had a, a, a pretty strong definition of what we thought success was. We so greatly exceeded that because the way the people bought in and how we got contributions at the lowest level of the company in every organization all around the world, it was unbelievable. But it starts with a core philosophy, and then you build from there. And so then we said innovative productivity solutions, and that's a function of, of being uh, innovative and continuous improvement. So you have all three of those elements in the mission statement, and every company has a mission statement, and most times nobody ever talks about them. We teach our mission statement. We reinforce our mission statement. We talk to people about why those words are in that mission statement and what we expect of people in terms of aligning their behaviors to what it takes to make the mission statement reality. So then you have to do things like, as we evaluate people, it's not just what you do, it's how you do it, and you get evaluated on the consistency of your behaviors aligned to the core values. And if it's high, it's great. If it's not, it knocks down your merit pay. So your pay is tied to performance and your value system. And then we have reward systems. So simple things that will go above and beyond that are a function of indicative of your behaviors, your attitude, putting the customer and the company first. Big ones in terms of a Vista award. Uh, we pay, what's it, $5,000 now, Steve, or something, to each team member of a winning Vista. And then Pinnacle, which is a worldwide competition, I think we pay $10,000 per person. Um, and you know, we're really looking for the best examples of core values-driven behaviors that result in the most significant impact for the customer and the company. And then we we have all kinds of forums where we constantly reinforce and train. We train to our values. We train to what we believe in on a constant basis in the company. And it's participated in from people who are in the training organization to members of the senior management team to the CEO. Our business system has, as the core of it, the core values. And so on the right is the planning process activities that ultimately on the left we have to execute. So we have an execution system that's a corporate accountability system and how we track what we're doing and we compare where we're at and we make ongoing adjustments. Every company has one. Some are effective, some are not. And at the heart of it is whatever we do is we have to assess it in terms of behaviors consistent to the core values. So, what are the benefits? Well, customers want to buy from you. So we took our market share from 27 to 49 in the past six years. Our turnover of high potential key people, 1%. Our shareholders typically lamb stock price, outperforms others in the industry, and sometimes by a significant amount. So, in closing, what are my views for whatever they're worth, I think you need to think about to build a successful career. One, find a successful company that's in an exciting growth market. Growth is important because it provides opportunities. And there's lots of exciting growth markets out there. Two, understand the existence or the lack thereof of a values-based culture. Understand that every company has a culture, for better or for worse. When you're interviewing, and you think that they're interviewing you, make sure you're interviewing them, and make sure you're trying to find out what's teamwork like around here? What's open communication like around here? 
How much is somebody who challenges the status quo embraced or put down? And ask it of enough people and you'll either get a lot of discrepancies or you'll get a lot of continuity. Either way, you'll learn a lot. And one of your jobs is find out as much as you can about what the real environment's like in that company, not all the marketing hype and all the rest of the stuff that the recruiters are telling you. And if you know somebody that works there, then, of course, you can get a much better perspective of what the reality is. And you want to work for a management team that you can trust, that you can respect, and that you can learn from. So whether it's your first-level management or all the way up to the senior management, what is that company's track record of promoting from within? So what are the opportunities for you, depending upon your ambitions, your skill set, to build a rewarding career? And last, if you bring an achievement orientation, you bring that mindset that you are going to work to be the best that you can be, whatever that is, and it's different for everybody, and you apply it within that environment, good things will happen to you. Not necessarily every year, every month, or every company, but over time. If you bring your set of values make good choices as to where you are going to apply your value set and merge it with another good environment and you commit to working hard and doing the best you can, you will be successful. And one last piece of advice that that people ask me all the time for their children, they go, what career should my child choose to have a successful career? So the first question I ask is, well, what's your definition of success? What do you think they tell me? Money. What else? Happiness. <laughs> <laughs> Parents assume that money and happiness are synonymous. That's totally baloney. Mine were hippies. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what else do parents want? In Asia, parents, uh, parents are concerned about security of your job. Yeah. They want you to get into a secure job. And they want you to work for a prestigious company. Right. Because if you're a prestigious company, then you're a prestigious person. Because only prestigious people work for prestigious companies. <laughs> that go to prestigious schools. That screen you out when you're 12 years old. And if you don't make the cut, it's over for you. So people can criticize the U.S. education system. And maybe the secondary system's got some issues. The U.S. college system doesn't care if you're 28, 40, whether you flunked out of junior high school, they don't care. What they care is, what are you going to do at this point in time for the rest of your life? And the world is your opportunity. And so to be successful, to put that to use, it's not about title, it's not about money. If you're after title and you're after money, you might get lucky and find happiness and success. Most people, though, heard about midlife crisis, right? So they wake up one day, triggered by the mortality, typically, of key people in their family, that you suddenly realize that you're not going to live forever. And where am I in my career? Oh, my God, what am I doing here? How did I get to where I am? And, and am I doing what I've always wanted to do? Or am I doing what my parents expected of me, people expected of me, and I was good at, but I've never liked it? Today, 
midlife crisis doesn't get triggered by mortality because people are living so much longer. Because if you waited for that, you'd be 65, your career's over anyway, and your parents die when you're 85 or something, right? <laughs> so it's triggered by other things. It's triggered by a realization, I only have so much more to live, whether it's your life or your working career, and am I really enjoying what I'm doing? And not every day, but overall. Do I get up in the morning and am I excited and motivated and passionate to come in and work with the people I work with and make a difference? And the only way that happens is you got to go do what you're passionate about, whatever that is. doesn't matter if it's being an artist, a musician, being a, a business executive, being in high tech, being in real estate. It, it doesn't matter. It's what are you passionate about? Because if you're passionate about something, then you will be the best that you can be in whatever that is. And you will reach whatever level of success your talent allows you to, but you're going to be in an arena, in, a, in an environment that you really enjoy. And if you choose out of any school, any environment, to go for the highest paying job, to go for the highest title, and in the course of that, put yourself in positions where you're working for the wrong company, the wrong industry, or whatever, you're going you're to learn the hard way. And lots of you will do that. But I'll tell you one thing. Typically, the companies that pay the most money and offer the most titles to less experienced people are the people who have to because others won't work for them. So be careful about that. Not always true. It's a bit of a generalization, but be careful. If you're getting offered a lot more money from another company, you better ask yourself, why are they paying so much more than these other guys? There's almost always a reason. I really appreciate your uh, participation, and uh, I wish you all uh, great success here at the GSM. This is, a, this is a great school, great faculty, great leadership, so I'll look forward to possibly running into a number of you at uh, some of the GSM events uh, over the coming years. So best of luck to all of you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.